We're back to the Neil Haley Show here on the Total Celebrity segment, sponsored by the Dr. Christopher Hall Show. And I'm excited to welcome, you know, when I think about childhood favorites, I am a huge Denver Bronco fan and Steeler fan, but Broncos are my team. I would wear my Denver Bronco jacket in high school and everyone would go out on me about losing the Super Bowls, which my guest, you know, that's, we don't want to talk about that as much, but just constantly, but I bled orange and blue. And this guest is huge. Uh, I'm excited to welcome the program. Legendary Denver Bronco, Carl Mecklenburg. Carl, thanks for stopping by. How are you? I'm good, Neil. So can you imagine the ribs I got in Pittsburgh? You know, the Steelers weren't very good at that time. And I had my Denver Bronco jacket wearing it to high school every day and hearing things from them. And then it would be great till the Super Bowl happened. So I at least said, hey, there's two teams. And this was the days when the Steelers weren't even going to the playoffs, you know, when you were on your big run for Super Bowls. And sure. I heard it, that's for sure. But I, yeah, no. I stayed loyal. Yeah, it... Uh... Those those were challenging uh, challenging years. Uh, if you just can't quite get over the hump, the uh, the uh, franchise obviously got over the hump uh, and repeatedly. And I'd like to think that uh, that those those Super Bowl losses uh, set up the the opportunity for Super Bowl wins. I believe it did, and I believe it gave Elway that incentive to want to do it and keep going until he did. Let's talk about where did you grow up, Carl? Tell us where you I grew up. up. Yeah, I grew up in Minneapolis. I was born in Seattle. My dad was in the army. Uh, I was born in Fort Lewis there, but uh, spent spent uh, my whole childhood and and through uh, through high school all all in Minneapolis. Okay, all Minneapolis. So tell me your family life. Like what? Um, were you, how many, did you have brothers and sisters kind of about? Sure. That? Yeah. I have an older sister. Uh, I, I am, uh, I am pretty sure one of the reasons I was a professional football player is, uh, the beating she would give me. <laughs> I had to prove my manhood. So that was, that was it. Uh, and, and then as soon as I got bigger than her, she uh, became a psychologist so she could still beat me up. So that's, uh, <laughs> She, uh, yeah, she, she was a big part of it. And actually she was a great athlete too. Uh, very, very good swimmer, very good athlete, a softball player, uh, and, and, uh, two younger brothers, uh, and, and uh, my parents, uh, were very involved. One of the, one of the things that, that I think, um, really allowed me to, to succeed as a, as a football player is just their, their acceptance of it. My, my dad was a, kind, gentle guy. He's actually an obstetrician gynecologist. Just, oh. I mean, and, and, and instead of sending me to the shrink when I wanted to hit guys, he said, get out there on the football field and hit them. So that was, that was, uh, that was pretty cool. And, and, and my mom, uh, my mom, you know, took care of all the dirty laundry and I just, just, uh, you know, driving me back and forth to practices and games and stuff. So yeah, yeah the family was definitely involved. How much did you know you were going, that you're going to be a did you always want to be a professional football player? Is that something you wanted to do? You know, not, not really, Neil. I was actually growing up in Minnesota. Hockey was the sport. I was the goalie on our hockey team and, and a very good one. Uh, interestingly enough, though, I think I think those experiences as a goalie helped me to be a much better linebacker. Uh the, the the position of goalie is all about angles. It's a, it's about uh, making sure you got the right angles and and uh, reacting uh, reacting very quickly, being decisive, and, and those are the two things I brought with me to the NFL. That when they switched me to linebacker, all of a sudden I was capable of it. When in college, like oh, I'm saying, when did you not know that you could be in the NHL? That's interesting. You talk about being a goalie. Uh, did you think you would, so your goal was to play in the NHL? When did you know that was not going to be it? Yeah, you know, uh, we moved uh, to a different city where there was already goalies and they didn't need a goalie. So I was out early on. Uh, we moved to Edina, which is a suburb of, of, of Minneapolis um, and great hockey city. Uh, unbelievable uh, uh kind of system so you came up through the system and if, if you weren't part of that system you really didn't fit in actually I played JV uh, football as a junior in high school I didn't make the varsity team as a junior in high school as a senior in high school I was six feet tall and 200 pounds not big enough to play major college football 
Um, but I was a good, uh, I was a tight end, a defensive end on our, on our high school football team was uh, all state at both positions, but wasn't big enough to play major college football. So I went to Augustana College in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, a little division two school on a one third scholarship, oh which I played, I played for two years there and they took it away. <laughs> I remember, I remember the day I'm, 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 I had led the team in sacks. I grew three inches and 40 pounds my first year at college. Oh, wow things changed. I got, I got good. My second year there, I led the team in sacks. I played every down on defense. I'm thinking they're going to give me the full scholarship. Like we talked about in my family's living room. I'm, I'm sitting down in the coach's office and first thing out of his mouth was Carl. We know your dad's a doctor. He can afford this school. We're going to take away your scholarship, use it to bring someone else in. Uh, so I left Augustana. I walked on at the university of Minnesota. I was in ineligible for a year, uh, earned a scholarship. Um, and, uh, and as a junior at uh, University of Minnesota, I led the Big Ten in sacks, tied with Andre Tippett. I was playing defensive tackle. As a senior um, at, at, at Minnesota, uh, we were so bad, nobody had to throw the ball against us, so I didn't get to rush the passer. Uh, but I did lead the team in tackles at, as a defensive tackle, and that's pretty unusual. So this is a kind of a really uh, a Rudy-type story in a way underdog overcoming things yeah, yeah a lot of overcoming and over, overcoming obstacles is is the key to success for me uh you you gotta you gotta be able to overcome obstacles that when i got to the nfl and and saw guys coming into training camp who'd always been the best players on their team uh you'd be amazed how many times those guys washed out because you're not going to be the best player on your team when you get to an nfl team as a rookie some someone's going to whip up on you and you better know how to bounce back from that I mean, for me, it was here we go again. Right? It was not. It was not a surprise that that uh, I got knocked down, but I picked myself up, figured out how to how to uh, how to fix that mis mistake, that challenge, and 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 fought through it. I cannot believe you're telling me that. That's such an amazing thing to think about. Specifically, that you played Division Two, didn't get a full ride, literally grew because if you were six three, you would have been the the right numbers, right? to get recruited by a division one school. It's always about size in certain aspects, go through it, do really well. They tell you no, and you walk on. So talk about walking on the story of walking on a team, how that feels like how you're like, this is kind of like where you're ready for your number to be called. If it's even going to happen, the walk on process, you have to go. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, at that time, at, at that time, Neil, um, when you transfer between four year colleges, you are ineligible to play in games. So you got to sit out for a year. So I was I was a red shirt for that first year. Um, I got there uh, amazingly at the University of Minnesota at the time. Uh, Mike Shanahan was the offensive coordinator. Oh, wow. I didn't... Mike Martz worked in the film room. Uh, Tony Dungy was a graduate assistant and Tony was actually in charge of the walk ons of the uh, the beaver team basically the, oh. the practice guys so so i worked with tony for that whole year um my job was to be a live blocking dummy i was supposed to imitate the guy from iowa or michigan state or whoever we're playing that week if if i want to eat with a team i've got to sweep up the weight room or sweep up the locker room that was that was part of my job um and and uh yeah i i was i was going to be the best football player that ever played the game that was my desire that was my passion i was pushing and pushing and pushing Every single day when I made a decision, it was tied to that. And, and I, I really feel like if you understand where you're going, if, if, if you have that target uh, and you make decisions that are steps towards that target, you've got a chance to accomplish great things. Uh, for me, making the team was the first step. Um, and, and, and moving on from there uh, to the NFL, I mean, I was, I was the 310th pick of the draft, Neil. No one expected me to make it in the NFL. Um, so there's the same story and everything. It's basically story. a story about of overcoming adversity, meaning sure. the, the challenges. Think about you're you know you're there. You're the tackling dummy. Yet then you end up becoming one of the best in the Big Ten. I mean, yeah. how does that happen? Is it is it a lot even with work ethic and stuff like that? It was interesting. Uh, I talked to Anthony Griggs and how Anthony Griggs' story ended up playing in the NFL. He's from Pittsburgh, and I, uh, I I'm friends with him and literally he told me the story you know that it's the process that it's kind of a story like yours where literally he was not even think he could play at a, at a division one school and did the work was it your work ethic the time that you spent outside that made you better than everybody else because 
they were expected to be the better one? What would you say? Yeah, I think so. I think you'd, um, the best way I could describe it is a sports mentality. Uh, a sports mentality means you are honest and forgiving with yourself. You, you, you look at what happened that day, you evaluate what went on, you, you fix what went wrong, you repeat what went right, um, and, and, and you take a step forward. In the NFL, they film everything. They film every game. They film every practice. Under Mike Shanahan, they even film meetings. So theoretically, you can sit in a meeting watching film of yourself, watching film of yourself practicing, right? Oh, Everything's wow. on film. Everything's evaluated. Um, and, and if you grade out 90%, you're an all pro. You're the best of the best. So they evaluate each play on technique and on assignment. So so uh, you're making mistakes, right? That. Yeah. That's reality. You make mistakes. You do the wrong thing. So the question is, how do you react to that? Do, do you do you are you honest with yourself? Do you blame other people? You say, oh, that coach didn't tell me, or defensive end should have done this, or the exactly. should or or do you say, okay, I can fix that. How, how do I set some goals? How do I how do I fix that this week and next week? I won't make that mistake. I'll probably make other mistakes. I know I will, but then I got to work on those and fix those. So that that sports mentality, I think, is really what allowed me to uh, to continue to grow um, and get better and better and better in football. Uh, I, I think the other thing was um, I'm very decisive. Right. Uh, I, I, I found out early on in my NFL career that if I took the first step in the right direction before anybody else did, all the angles would change in my favor. Right. The tight end couldn't pin me in. The guard couldn't cut me off. The fullback couldn't keep me from getting to the line. Everything changed. And that's not just true in football. That's true in relationships. That's true in business. That, that, that's, that's a fact. If you're prepared, you go into a situation, understanding what may happen, having already thought about it. And then when those opportunities arise, you, you, you react properly and you take that, uh, take that chance and be decisive. Uh, everything changes. So, so for me, that those were the two things, I, I guess, more than anything. And I get, I add a third thing. Uh, I was a teammate. I right. would do whatever we could to, to win, you know, whether it was sweeping the locker room or whether it was, uh, you know, playing special teams or making the switch when they switched me from defensive end to linebacker, uh, you know, and whatever, whatever would help the team. So, so for me, that I think allowed that reputation and that, that approach to it allowed me to have a long career. So preparation. So I'm seeing that it sounds like, even though you're so humble, your preparation got you to the level, your study of film, understanding things and not getting upset when you made mistakes led you to become a really successful linebacker. And then when finally you got to the NFL, so the NFL, you said you were undrafted, right? Or was that what you said? I was, no, I was the 310th pick. There. I was a 12th round draft choice, oh, 20 wow. guys away from Mr. Irrelevant. Okay. <laughs> I, would, I would have been better off financially if I'd have been a free agent, truthfully, because the Broncos owned my rights and I got the base salary. I mean, that, that was it. So, so uh, um, I went in, I was drafted as a nose guard, ended up uh, tearing a ligament in my elbow during training camp. And you can't play nose guard if you can't lock both arms out. So they moved me to defensive end. I played defensive end um, for two years, uh, special teams, and uh, coaches came to me uh, before my third year and said, Carl, we've got a, we got a, um, a need at linebacker, and, and we've watched you to play. We think you can play linebacker. Never done it in my life. It's a very different job, but uh, if the team needed me to do that. I was going to do that. Uh, switched to linebacker. Didn't even start until the 10th game of that year. Uh, made the Pro Bowl as an all-pro linebacker that year. Um, I was a linebacker and no coach had ever seen that in me, but, uh, yeah. that, that to me is, is, was, was an amazing example of, um, uh, of, of what a coach should do. Uh, a coach should connect with his players, understand what they're capable of and put them in situations to be successful. Um, to me, you, you use the strengths of the individual to, uh, cover for the weaknesses of the team. Uh, use the strengths of the team to cover for the weaknesses of the individual and uh, and away you go and and Joe Collier Merle Moore Stan Jones that defensive staff were uh, were were vital in my in my success in the NFL and 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 in many players success in the NFL they would they would put players in situations and and, and try things that no other coaches would try I'd have, I'd have been uh, you know the the average guy in the NFL I'd have been three years and out 
um, if they'd have left me at defensive tackle or nose guard, I wasn't big enough to play those positions every down. Now I could play those positions, um, but but I couldn't take a full season of pounding at the, at those positions. So linebacker, what made you a better linebacker than the other positions you played in football? Getting in well, yeah, yeah, I, I think I think having the opportunity to play linebacker, especially inside linebacker, um, what was was such a blessing because I could I could um, control things from where I was at. I, I understood the blocking patterns. I played defensive tackle before, so I'm lined up on the guard. Uh, so I understood the the the, the blocking patterns, but. Uh, now I was uh, free to the ball more often than not. Uh, we got defensive linemen eating up the blockers. I, I can make the take the angles that I learned as a goalie and, and make the play, uh, you know, at the line of scrimmage or behind the line of scrimmage. And, and uh, you know, it was it was just the right spot for me. Uh, that decisiveness piece is huge at linebacker. If you can take the first step. Uh, you got it licked at linebacker. I, I run a four nine forty. I'm not fast enough to play in the NFL, but that first step is the difference. If I had to run 40 yards, we were in big trouble anyway. Right? <laughs> but that, that first step allowed me to make all kinds of plays. And what would you say having the right coaches around you with the Broncos for your success of being six time pro bowler, right? Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Um, huge. Uh, I mean, it got to the point under Joe Collier that, that they were putting me where they thought the ball was going to go uh, at the point of attack. So I played all seven defensive front positions. There were games. Uh, I played all seven in one game. They'd move me where they thought the ball was going to be. They'd move me when they thought there was a, uh, a mismatch with an offensive lineman. Uh, you know, if, if they had a tendency to run to the right side all the time, I'd be on the right side. If they had a tendency to run to the strong side all the time, I'd be on the strong side. And uh, there's no place you'd rather be as a defensive player than at the point of attack. So, uh, you know, they, I, my, my, my versatility um, and, and their ability and their, their, their vision of saying, you know what, we can, we can uh, make it really challenging for the offenses to prepare for us uh, right. by moving somebody around. I mean, you look at what happens now when, uh, when there's uh say an off uh, an obvious offensive passing situation. Mm -hmm. So then the defense substitutes a bunch of bunch of guys and, and, and that makes the offense know exactly what kind of defense they're going to be in. Right. So, because they're substituting. Now I could play outside linebacker. I could play inside linebacker. I could be the defensive end in a pass rush. And I was in our nickel defense, my whole career, I was a, I was a right defensive end. Um, so they, they didn't know what defense we were going to be in ultimately. So they, they couldn't judge what play to call based on on what defense we we're in uh, because of the foresight of Joe Collier and that that defense defensive team and, and their ability to say, you know, let's let's try this. Let's see how this works. Uh, obviously, I was a beneficiary of that. Exactly. And your teammates, I'm sure you have a lot of good friends that you develop being a Bronco, right? Sure, sure do. Uh, lots, lots of guys that uh, that went through it with me. Dennis Smith, uh, our strong safety at the time, uh, great, great, great player. A guy that uh, uh, Joe trusted to cover sl uh, slot receivers man to man. I mean, an unbelievable athlete. A guy that uh, was in charge of the back four. I was in charge of the front seven, and uh, um, yeah, a great, great man. A guy, a guy that I'm still got a great relationship with. Uh, Jim Ryan, Greg Craig, and uh, Simon Fletcher. I mean, the, the list goes on and on and on. Guys that 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 I'm close to. Guys that uh, that uh, allowed me to play the way I was able to play. I mean, one of the challenges with moving a player around is that everybody has to know two positions. I mean, we had to have a smart team with guys that were able to make those adjustments and and move around based on what Joe was trying to do with me. So uh, so a bunch of bright guys, guys that uh, love the game of football and, and and won a bunch of games. That's 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 tremendous. How was it watching John Elway play? I know you're you're on the sidelines when you're seeing John. Sure. What, yeah. I mean. Yeah, John. John was amazing. John. I mean, Dan Reeves was our coach for nine of the twelve years I played, and Dan was an old, uh, you know, three yards in a cloud of dust kind of guy. Uh, if if, if uh, Tom Landry didn't do it, we didn't do it. Uh, and, and so he had some shackles on John until it was two minutes. Right, two minutes. John's calling the plays on the field. <laughs> it was. It was a way we go. Uh, as a defensive player, you know you can take chances that uh, other teams couldn't take. 
even if you got behind a little bit, if it was close at the end of the game, we were going to win that game. Exactly. I mean, that way was unbelievable that way. And, and, and obviously the off, the whole offense had to, to, you know, buy in and, and be a part of that. But John, John was tremendous, uh, especially in the two minute drill, especially when he's scrambling around. Um, yeah. Was a, was a great player and a great teammate in many ways. Absolutely. All right. So let's talk about your greatest moments with the Denver Broncos. What would you say they were? Well, since you're a Pittsburgh fan, I had, I had a four sack game against Pittsburgh. Actually this, uh, this here, that's uh defensive player of the week in the NFL for that okay. game against Pittsburgh. So, so uh, yeah. Um, Who was the quarterback? Who was the quarterback of Pittsburgh? Would you remember? I don't remember. Let's see. It's uh, December 1st, 1985. Um, mm, so, was it in Denver or was it in Pittsburgh where you were? It was in Pittsburgh. Yeah. The 85. Was, oh, I'm, I'm going to think. <laughs> It could have been Cliff Stout, maybe. Yeah, it could have been. Yeah, he wasn't Bobby very Brister mobile. Or Bubby Brister. Or... Yeah, it may have been Bubby. I don't know. I, <laughs> was a, he was the guy holding the ball. I tackled him. <laughs> That's it, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, awesome. And the Super Bowls, again, were the biggest adversity. Again, your career just loose. It's just tough, right? The it really was. You know, there were different reasons we lost each one of them. Um and, and, you know, it was, uh, it was challenging. You go into that situation. A lot of what we did defensively uh, for the first two was based on deception. Right. Uh, you know, we, we were doing, moving me all around, doing all that stuff. Um, and when you had one week to prepare for that, it's one thing, but when you have two weeks to prepare for that, uh, uh, apparently they figured us out. <laughs> we, uh, we, we didn't have much success and we, we ended up in running defenses when they were passing and pass defenses when they were running and they had changed their, uh, tendencies, especially when we played against the giants, that, that was a tremendous, uh, uh, coaching job by Bill Parcells. Cause they were as predictable a team as I'd ever seen in my life. We went into that game knowing what they were going to do on first and 10, knowing what they were going to do on third and five or more or five or less. I mean, it was, it was, you know, 95% uh, tendencies. And we get into that game and Bill Parcells turned it upside down. They got all the way to the Super Bowl doing it one way. And they got in that game and they said, no, they, Denver's going to overplay our tendencies and we'll take advantage of that. And, and they did. Um, against San Francisco, I, uh, got leg whipped in the first quarter, tore cartilage in both my knees, oh my uh, was out for the, for the rest of the game. Uh, I don't know that that would have made any difference or not if I'd have been in that game, but I'd like to think it would have, um, first Super Bowl, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was new, uh, it was, it was wide open, uh, and, 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 you know, we, we had chances and we did, we didn't, uh, I think in that game, uh, our kicker missed two field goals in the in the first quarter. Uh, actually, went into halftime ahead and and ended up losing. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, there's stuff went on. Um, it was tough. Uh, you, you you do what you can try to win the games, but if you if you lose the game, it's amazing to me. I, I've I've talked to uh, guys who have won the Super Bowl. Uh, obviously, I've been on the other end of that, and it's amazing to me how quickly it's all about next year. Guys get yeah. traded. Uh, guys retire, uh, coaches go to other staffs, uh, the draft happens and, and it's all about next year. Uh, and, 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 and I, th I think that when you win the thing, it's a big letdown. It's like all of a sudden, wait a second, we're the champions. Wow. Wait a second. It's all about us, but, but all of a sudden, no, it's a, it's about the next season. Um, and, and when you lose the thing, you're very happy. It's all about the next season because you're ready to, to go play. I was fortunate enough to go to the Pro Bowl each of those three Super Bowl years uh, when we lost and had another game. And back then you played it as a game. It wasn't a touch football thing like, like they do now, right? Yeah. Uh, so so all of a sudden I was preparing for another game and, and uh, moved on. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's frustrating. If I look at my career, I, I know I'd have been a Hall of Fame player if I'd have, I'd have won one of those Super Bowls. Uh, Unfortunately, like I said, it's a team game and you do what you, you could, can. You could be but, never, you know, later inducted in the NFL Hall of Fame. That's a good question for you. You know, as that, how they have to do later people. Right. The senior committee. Yeah. Yeah. You know, hopefully, hopefully it'll happen before I die. Yeah. <laughs> my, my wife doesn't like giving speeches. <laughs> that won't be good. Um, 
you know, truthfully, if, if, if you look at uh, my career, I think, I think one of the challenges that the, the committees have with me as far as Hall of Fame is, is my statistics don't match up because I played all seven front positions. No, nobody's done that before. Uh, I don't see anybody doing it again. Um, so my statistics don't look right. Uh, if you just look at me as a pass rusher, I had 79 and a half sacks. It was most in, in Bronco history at one point, wow. uh, but it wasn't uh, Hall of Fame sack numbers. But I was in pass coverage a bunch of times during passing downs. So, so, so maybe that doesn't make sense. Uh, you know, if you look at my interceptions, if you look at my tackles, they're they're all skewed a little bit because I didn't I didn't play one position right. where I would have built all those statistics. Uh, you know, at that position, I think that's one of the one of the issues. Uh, I, I think the other issue um, is trying to quantify you know what my value was to the team. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, if you look at the Super Bowl years, 86, 87, 89, uh, in 88 um, was the only season I missed games. I missed seven games in 1988. We ended up eight and eight that year. Mm-hmm. If you look at the points against average per per game, uh, when I played and when I didn't play and when I didn't play, I had a cat or when I did play, I had a cast on my hand most, you know, most of the time. Uh, if you look at the points per average in those games, it was nine points more that we gave up when I didn't play than when I did play. Uh, that's, that's pretty significant, I think. So, so, you know, maybe, maybe I, I just need to have the right, right person uh, cheering me on in, in front of those guys, but, but I think I belong and, and maybe someday that'll happen. Exactly. All right. Life after football. Were you ready? Were you prepared for that? I am. I, you know, that, that it was time for me. Um, my uh it was time to spend some more time with my family uh my body was done i uh, i've had 18 football related surgeries 10 on my knees um mm-hmm. you know i've been through it uh and and so i was about a half step short on everything that last year i ended up getting three concussions the difference between uh being ahead of the play and and behind the play is is either you make it or you get hit in the ear hole. <laughs> I was getting hit in the ear hole that last year. Uh, so it was time. And I knew it was time and I retired. The, the, uh, the owner and the coaches tried to talk me into coming back, but I, I, could, I couldn't play the way I was comfortable with playing at that point. Uh, so so uh, I retired, uh, went fishing for a while, spent a lot of time with my family. It was good. Um, now I'm a pro- professional speaker. For the last 16 years, uh, I've been giving keynote speeches, uh, comparing uh you know the the knowledge i got out of football with with what's going on in the business world what's going on in people's lives and and uh making a difference that way and i, and I love it the the um the pattern of it is so much like football i i prepare depending on uh you know who i'm speaking for i i uh i uh perform at a high level for a short period of time i evaluate what went on i fix whatever was wrong i repeat whatever was right and i get ready for the next one i mean it's football except yeah. i don't hurt right so it's it's perfect so what do you see in the professional speaking career gig how it's changed you know with covid then after covid oh, yeah the, the way how did you have to you know continue to evolve when everyone is wanting they want to do what you're doing be a professional yeah. that's one oh, of the if, that, if you look at so many people they want to be a professional speaker i know you run into it all the time hey how can i be a professional speaker it's all about brand carl mecklenburg has a brand <laughs> nfl Denver Broncos and it speaks to people who you speak with and your success and that is your brand and things and brand has changed in so many ways uh, yeah it has it has the the um I've, I'm, I've been a member of the National Speakers Association for 15 years uh it's a group of of speakers who gets together and shares uh information around branding around uh um you know how how you present yourself from from the stage uh you know how how you how you put together a speech that's targeted for the audience you're speaking for you know all all the intricacies of of professional speaking um and and uh i've learned so much from those guys it's it's amazing the uh the ability to grow and learn and 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 uh the the ability to be a part of a team uh has, has been tremendous so if there is if there are people out there who are interested in being a professional speaker, like you're talking about, I would start 
there. Uh, and, yeah. and there's, um, there's, uh, in every major city and, and almost every state in, in the union, there's uh, state associations, uh, national speakers associations, state groups. Uh, I'm very involved in the Colorado group. Obviously, I'm involved in the national group, um, and it's, it's made a huge difference for my, um, for my business. That being said, uh, what's taught there over and over and over again is niche yourself real tight. Uh, and, and, you know, you choose what industry you're going to, you're going to work in right. uh, and you develop your name recognition within that industry. And then you expand right. from there to, if you want to have a wider audience. Now I already have name recognition, right. so I'm kind of going at it a different way. I'm, I've already got the name recognition. So how do I narrow that down to, uh, this is, this is a professional who does a great job. And so then, that, so I kind of go backwards. And do you see the relevancy of you at where people are football related fans and how that relates, especially the years you've been speaking because names and brands change throughout. How do you keep Carl Mecklenburg relevant years after years after years to keep your professional speaking career going? Cause yeah. everyone's coming out of the woodwork with different things and different stories and your stories are amazing. All these different things, but people change and they might have not seen you play. Right. So that's, yeah, that's for sure. I got to show a highlight video before I speak <laughs> just to develop that uh, that relevancy. Um, truthfully, uh, I have had to switch some stories. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about uh, uh, Man Peyton Manning and, and Tom Brady now more instead of uh, John Elway and, and Johnny Unitas in the past. Right. So so things things have obviously changed. But the, the, the fact of the matter is the truth is the truth. Uh, and then I talk about teamwork, courage, dedication, desire, honesty and forgiveness, goal setting, universal, unchanging keys to success that applied yeah. for grandparents if they wanted to be successful and will apply for your grandchildren if they want to be successful. These are things that don't change and you need to be reminded of. And I remind um, my audiences of uh, those things from from a different angle, maybe than they've been thinking about it. I feel like I go into uh, these situations and, and everyone in the audience can can watch a sporting event and say, you know what, I, that team is playing like a team that other that's not that's not what a team is. They're, they're not playing like a team. So they know what a team is, uh, but they don't see that in their own lives. They don't they don't see their family as a team. They don't see their um, their business as a team. They don't see their community as a team. Uh, when I walk out of that room after I'm done speaking, I want them to realize they're a part of teams and, and, and being a part of a team is a wonderful thing. You're going to be able to accomplish way more than you possibly could outside of a team as part of a team. So, so how do you tie into that team? And that's, that's what I talk about. And you do follow up with these organizations you speak with to try to see if they're implementing some of your strategies. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Um, it's, it's a, uh, it's an interesting business because I've got an hour with them more often than not. I try to spend more time with the groups. I'll come in early and play in their golf event and hang out with them and go to meals with them just so I can get to know them better so I can speak their language and and and, and maybe answer some of their questions uh, from the platform. But uh, but yeah, um, the, the follow up is, has got to be there. Uh, and, and the ROI is, ha, has been there in the past and will continue to be there because, because I take it seriously. And, and these, it's a, I mean, when I get up there and I talk about these things, it, you know, every, everybody, I, I, I can't, you're an adult, right? Uh, everybody, everybody I'm speaking to more often than not is an, an adult. They, they know these things. Yeah. But they these don't are, follow them. You know, yeah, these aren't surprises to them, but I've no. got to remind them of the value there and, and how it's going to make a difference in their life. So so that that's that's my job. All right, Carl, best place we can find information on you. People want to book you and stuff. Yeah, go to carlmecklenburg.com. Uh, you can re you can misspell it a couple of different ways. Hopefully you, you can put it up on your, uh, you know, go in there, Google that carlmecklenburg.com uh, and, and it'll pop up there. There's video there. Obviously my, my contact information is there. Um, there's a lot of client feedback there. Uh, yeah, I'd love, I'd love to hear from folks. All right. Thanks again, Carl. Appreciate it. It was a great. I have a thought. I could have a thousand questions with you. Definitely have to have you back on again. And I'd like to talk about more of the, the speaking thing because you, I, I have an idea for you. If you've not thought about it, the way to expand your business, teach other people to speak because you, you really, that is becoming a gigantic business. You have the brand name, never know later when you don't want to travel as much There's so much more to do. So something to think about.
I appreciate it, Neil. All right. Thank you're you. listening. Thanks, and, all right. You're welcome. You're listening and watching the Neil Haley Show. We'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley Show here on the Caregiver Dave Celebrity segment. I'm excited to welcome the program. Caregiver Dave Nasani. Dave, how are you? What's going on, man? Oh, man. Book launch. Our movie's going to be uh, screening and film festivals uh, in September. Really excited. All right, and so I'm excited to welcome the program actor, director, and producer, Andrew Burton. He's going to talk about all the Lord's men and more. Andrew, thanks for stopping. How are you, man? I'm pretty good, Neil. How are you? Good, good, good. So first question for you. Did you always want to be a, an actor, a director, and producer growing up? And where did you grow up? Yeah. I, so I grew up uh, in Portland, Oregon. Um, I, I think the first thing I kind of wanted to do was probably write. Um, I wrote, you know, novels, uh, a lot of screenplays. But then I kind of got into acting uh, in college. I did like a lot of off-Broadway kind of stuff, um, some acting classes. And, you know, the directing thing, that just kind of happened as soon as I left school. And I kind of started, started making my first short films and just kind of got the hang of it by doing it. And um, then I, I was making features, you know, a couple years later. Um, so yes, I think I've always been into the arts, um, you know, writing, acting, directing. Are they all supposed to go together in one package? I think so, at least in my case, I do like doing all of them. And I think it's kind of cool to kind of be able to package a story, you know, that specifically, because I think, you know, as a certain person who does few different crafts I think you can craft things a little bit more precisely maybe you can you know tell stories a little bit differently than if you had to explain what this in a screenplay means to a director you bring in so I think having that type of I guess vertically integrated control as one person is kind of something I actually like yeah Andrew I mean compared to us old guys you look so young how old are you and how did you achieve all of this stuff so soon, I mean, 20, 30 years ago in Hollywood, guys your age would never be in the position you're in. Well, I mean, I think I'm 27. I think Orson Welles. Oh, yeah, he's old. I, I think Orson Welles was quite a bit by the time he was my age. I, I don't know the exact ages. He's yeah, the I, exception, though. He's the exception. Okay. I, I think in my case, it's just been kind of like running directly into the the fire not that there's ever been a fire but it's been about doing things um i pretty much spend all my time working so it's it's been all since i got to la right after school it's just been about you know finding people to collaborate with people who want to work on these films with me kind of figuring out the whole business side of things which i think is obviously everything because you know these things just live in drawers if you don't like have some type sure. of brain to do things with them so yeah it's just been doing it and running and doing it more and i'm still doing it so it's just doing it yeah see you know? neil he said the magic word work ethic that's it's what a, it is guys your ethic. age don't have that work ethic where'd you get it from um uh, okay I, <laughs> I don't know i've, I've always had a work ethic. born that way growing up in portland did it did it have to because of the mindset have that work ethic in survival or what would you say i don't know if it was like so i think the first kind of thing that occupied a lot of my life was um, <clears throat> ski racing um and i probably got some kind of work ethic from that um you know i ski like three quarters of the year kind of like around the world like training with sort of rather strict coaches um so i think it is just kind of the repetition of athletics which I guess has informed sort of what I'm trying to do artistically but like yeah I don't even look at it as just art because you do think of art and you I mean I don't know if that's really a compatible word you know in, in Hollywood you have to really combine art with business and a work ethic so I think I don't know I think athletics seem like a, a really good kind of segue to, to filmmaking in, in my case I think that in school and kind of just being like a boring kind of studious person um has been something which has served me well you know yeah. well don't it break did. any bones uh <laughs> that much yeah, it's, uh, yeah oh my gosh okay so when you said you know got involved in acting directing and filmmaking all that stuff what age were you when you first started um so i think i started writing kind of like in a way where I thought, okay, I'm a writer um, in like seventh grade. So, you know, kind of early just for like prose and kind of novel writing. I was reading Sid Field's screenplay in sixth grade, I think, and just 
I read it two or three times and then I started writing screenplays, which are, um, I, I look at them fondly and they're probably fine, but I mean, I think objectively they might be trash. I don't know, but you know, I've been writing, it was writing and then, um, what was the question? So when is, so kind of when the acting, directing and producing starts, so writing in seventh grade, then yeah. when did that finally start to become a profession for you and all that stuff, how old were you? Yeah, it started to kind of become a professional thing when I was like, what, 23, maybe? Okay. So right after so skiing, so skiing and then that. Went and then that, basically, yeah. Um, but it was always kind of this, you know, I think it started in my head, at least firmly kind of in college. I would, you know, in college, I would kind of commute between like New Hampshire and New York City quite a bit just to kind of meet people in the film industry and kind of just like go to various kind of off Broadway theater productions and kind of see how that works, you know, from a directing angle, from an acting angle and everything. So I think even in college, I was already, my, my heart was kind of like in the city, so to speak. Not that art has to live in New York city or any type of city, but I think just kind of, I always kind of wanted to just kind of leapfrog into some type of professional setting instead of just kind of leaving all my artistic kind of contributions on some type of student stage you know um so yeah I I've, my head's just always been at it since since as early as I can really remember and I just started doing it and um you know you try to build momentum you do it every day and momentum eventually builds and that's just kind of what I'm still doing right now just kind of building that momentum and turning my kind of production company into something larger that hopefully you know people will kind of know about um soon-ish you know you just kind of yeah. keep yeah. No, that's and that's what we always like to talk about. But that's that entrepreneurial mindset. That means when you're starting this young, it's going to be really big for you. And Dave, wouldn't you agree? It's just all about work ethic, and it's about having goals in mind and going after them. Yeah, and I, I'm wondering what was the film industry like in Portland versus LA. I mean, I'm sure there was a culture shock coming down here. Uh, did you start the production company up there or down here? Or? No, I, I started all that down here. Um, I don't know anything about the film industry in Portland, to be honest with you. Does I mean, it even exist? <laughs> I don't know. It probably doesn't. For me, the Portland film industry is like, I've never even thought about it. I don't know. Maybe it's cool. <laughs> I don't know. That said, I do want to film something in Portland or in Oregon very soon because I think it looks very cool on film. Um, but I don't know about the Portland film industry. For me, it was basically college, then kind of intermingling with kind of a scene in New York City. And then right after college, the day I graduated straight to LA. So it's just pretty much just been LA. It's kind of just been like where I've been getting my feet wet and walking into these sure. as I keep mentioning. Not, yeah. Yeah. So it's been LA. And how's it been? It's been cool. There's oh yeah. So so talk, give us a story of just fighting that bullet and going to LA. You know what yeah, I mean? And, so and by the way, you're going to have to give up skiing and learn how to surf since you're here. I've never surfed. Um, yeah. I've offers to learn to surf. But if I you can ski, you can surf. Skiing that would work. No, I don't, I don't know. He's thinking of a sport that would work. What would skiing? What would Are you a snowboarder or not? Not a snowboarder. Um, you know, skiing, I haven't done it in a while, but obviously there's mountains close to LA, like Mammoth. I've never even... Yeah. When you're getting, when the business blows up even more, then that's when you go skiing. All yeah, right. So, exactly. so tell me, taking the leap of faith to move to LA, tell us some of that story, you know, because that's what people need to see is if you want to be successful in your career, if you want to do things the right way, you have to, to decide I'm going, I'm all in. I'm not yeah. half in, I'm not a quarter in, I'm all in. Kind of, yeah. yeah. Um, the farm. <laughs> for me, yes. So this leap of faith. Um, I want to say I've been willfully blind to many things because I did literally graduate. And then a day later, I was finding my first place in L.A. Um, and I think this has a lot to do with a willful, willful kind of ignorance that things would just kind of work out. So I don't recall a moment where I was like shivering with fright about this whole type of new life I was embarking on, which I guess has become my life I'm realizing now. Um, it just happened because I just kept doing things. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think one of the hardest things at first was probably just that first short film um, because it is a little bit awkward to kind of be like nobody and start kind of auditioning actors and you 
bring this like a little camera crew together and you rent out like a location to film the thing in and I think for me it was just a lot of just blatant awkwardness like why are we filming a film with this guy who is he is this thing even good because even now like people don't know if, if a film is going to be good like when you're on set because it's, it's just it's such a different kind of arduous very manual thing when you're on set it's it's even like the big directors I think it, it's hard because if you have like no kind of body of work out there which is me right now that people kind of can reference they really don't assume the best when they're on set with you. They think that, you know, you're a great guy. This is fun, hopefully, but they don't, they don't think this is going to turn into anything. And so that's just awkward. Just trying to keep that kind of enthusiasm on a set with people who really are with you kind of just flying blind into not only careers, hopefully, but also what the story even could be. So it's a lot of just kind of embracing awkwardness, which I've always been fine with um, just because I think I've always just felt awkward um in a very kind of um just awkward way you know you know what i'm saying so it's it's just it's just been being okay with feeling weird and awkward um because filmmaking is weird and awkward especially at first so it seems like everybody's making a film these days i mean they're making a film about my life so go figure um what was your first short about uh, my first short was called Exchange Students. It was um, filmed at Pacific Palisades High School here in LA. Um, it was about a couple, it was like a group of kind of international students who are stuck in a classroom and they can't leave and they just kind of lament about their fates to each other and they, they just talk. It's kind of about nothing in a Seinfeldy kind of sitcom sense. I've always kind of prized just kind of witty dialogue and bomos over like you know like like action movie kind of plots you know and so it was set in one room and that's very much for budgetary reasons because it's way cheaper to film in one room and also what was the reason why they couldn't leave so i never really explained that but i think it was because there was an apocalypse outside I think that's always like unnecessary details. Unnecessary details. I think that's always a good good reason to keep people in one location. Yeah, it's just to say there's the world has ended outside. That's interesting. You know. And did it? Did you uh, go to film festivals? Did it win any awards? I mean, it had, where that, that that one just played for friends because um, it was just a way to kind of get my feet wet and see what was up with filming. And I think it's okay. And maybe one of these days I'll release it like on some type of bonus feature package. So, so based on that, when you first made a film, finally a feature, how hard is it to find the actors? Explain that process and the funding of funding the film too. There's two different things. People now could be independent film maker and act and not have to go audition other places if they can find the right investors, find the right actors and have a successful film. That's the change in this business than maybe 20 years ago, right? Yeah, I think it's way easier these days to take control of the career that you want. Um, Finding actors is almost, well, I'm gonna say it's almost easy um, because there are so many talented actors in the world and not just LA, but you know, last year I filmed four feature films. you know, I filmed all over the world. I filmed in Miami, Texas, New York, LA, and Germany. Um, this was all kind of during COVID. So, you know, we had a lot of other challenges to deal with. Everyone stayed healthy and safe, luckily. But what I found kind of making that was that there's like really cool people all over the world. And it's almost, it's like almost disturbingly mind boggling that all these good actors are out there just kind of ready to work on these films. And they're, they're cool people who can do amazing things with, you know, line delivery and look cool on screen, all these things. And they're, they're everywhere. So for me, uh, finding actors has been just a fun thing to do, see what's out there, see what different cultures offer, what these different countries kind of film industries even look like. Like I've been trying to kind of be international as much as I can at my small scale from like from day one, you know, I do like I loved filming in Germany. That was cool. Filming was like Europeans um, and I plan to do it again. So yeah, I mean, I just think there's like a ton of opportunity out there for a lot of people who want to be involved with things. And then just kind of finding investors. I mean, you have to get out there and just meet people and hope you just 
find yeah, that investor discussion, Dave, you're interested in that you might make another film. Uh, how's that investor process work? How do you get people that want to invest in your film? You just have to build a relation with someone who likes art, likes filmmaking and present yourself as not a doofus because um, nobody wants to invest in doofuses. I mean, it's, 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 it's like, I, I think talking to investors is not rocket science. These are just people who are generally cool people who want to see something cool on screen that they can point to and say, I helped get that made. So all you really want to do is just like kind of sell the visual of the film to them. Um, just be yourself with them because again, everyone is just a person in this world. And I mean, it, it's just, it's just, you just got to get out of there. It's a number saying. How the heck do you find them? That's the question that so you, many filmmakers you work watch. with them, Neil, uh, my filmmaker, you know, he, he's working, he has other jobs. He does great work. And you know, you know, people, you meet people, this guy knows that guy and you say, Hey, I'm working on a project. Oh, really? What's it about? You know, oh, Hey, send me a rough clip, you know? It's just yeah. kind of a conversation. It's who you know. It's it's a conversation. Who you know. Meet more people. Thing. I mean, just leverage. And everything comes together. Boom. Any connections you might have from school or any other type of work you do. Just I mean, just, if it's good, you know. There's a lot of people on this planet. There's investors all over the country, all over the world. I mean, yeah. yeah. So that's what. See, there are people right now listening, Dave, that has that question. There are filmmakers right now that will tune in because they'll see the Neil Haley show and all the different things and say, and either YouTube channel or decide to listen to on the radio yeah. and say, I need that tip or a podcast and say, I need that tip because really, where do you find them? It's just networking, but then and it needs to be, yourself. it needs to be good work too, Neil. It, you know, okay, you well, need it, to be oh, you need, able to take honest good criticism. Yeah. You yeah. Know, of course you think it's great because you're prejudiced, but ask other people, Hey, you know, be honest with me, you know, cause nobody wants to tell you your film sucks, you know, good, good story. And as a production company, you go out and find those investors and network with other production people and all that. So here's yeah. my question. Let's talk about your film now, Andrew, talk about your film. Let's talk about how that, how that came being and you at, you're acting in it too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's called all the Lord's men. It's a comedy film set in Los Angeles, California. Uh, it centers around two detectives, uh, Jimmy, who I play, and Jerry, played by Noel Mirabal, a really good actor from Miami. Uh, they're kind of bozo detectives living in this cult trying to solve a murder. Um, An Inspector Clouseau kind of a... It's, it's more kind of Miami Vice. Sorry. Love it. Miami Vice is a big fan of, yeah. Oh, I love Miami Vice. Yeah. Okay, so that's funny. A millennial likes Miami Vice. What? I don't know. I, I, oh, how the hell's that? Cool looking. The music is amazing. I think oh, it's the, the Michael Mann touch is. Oh my God, it's the greatest. It, I, I love dressed up. You want to know my age? I dressed up in the Miami Vice deal. Okay, I had Don Johnson shirt. <clears throat> I had the. I had the the slacks. I wore everything Miami Vice when it was popular. The ladies loved me in that age, when I was that age wearing that. I was in seventh or eighth grade wearing the Miami Vice style stuff. So oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. I'm 49. So <laughs> just to go, you know, so but okay. no, it's just it's interesting to hear that millennials are watching shows like that. Dave, were you a Miami Vice fan? Yeah, who wasn't? Who wasn't? It's cool. It just it looks cool. Michael Mann has a touch that makes things look cool. There's like, it's not even full of substance. It doesn't need to be. It just looks cool. I even like his movie adaption of Miami Vice, which a lot of people hate. So yeah, when I was writing this movie, I did have Miami Vice just playing on loop on my television. Um, and that was pretty much what I was channeling. Uh, just 1980s type of music and cop things and then I wrote this thing and I said the plot a second ago, but this is what I would call a deliberately plotless art film, um, which one would think would diminish a potential audience, but I don't think that needs to be the case because there's really good music by a composer duo called Room 8. There's really good performances and it's full of comedy like Seinfeld is. Seinfeld is a show that you watch without caring about the plot because you love the characters and you love the dialogue. So that's what I was trying to do with this movie. Um, and it's just kind of these guys trying to figure out this kind of murder, which doesn't matter. And they just kind of talk about their lives and they meet these people. There's this guy living in a cult. He's trying to write the new Bible. 
guy named Larry, played by Bill Castro Giovanni. Um, he has a wife he doesn't like. Half an hour later in the movie, after meeting him and his wife, we see him having like intimate relations with the man who leads the cult, Dr. Bosner, played by Matt Fling. Um, so it's just a strange little movie. It's kind of like Inherent Vice by Paul Thomas Anderson, or maybe a little bit of David Lynch is in there, you know, though I think that might be too easy a comparison. A little bit of Michael Mann, just because a lot of the use of the music. I love it. I love your ability and your thought process of 27 to be able to do this and have your production company. Dave, I'm impressed by this guy. I really am by his just, your mind is amazing because you're taking and learning history of film and putting it all together into your own stuff. Seinfeld. Next generation. He's the next generation, truly. And he's doing it, building it on his own production company. That's the smart way, Dave. Because, right, am I correct? You might direct some other stuff that's not your production company, but you want to make your name doing it this way. It's I want to make my name doing it this way. It's the Desi Arnaz model, you know. I don't know that person. Should I know that uh, Lucy. I love Lucy. I husband. love Lucy. Okay. Ricky. Did you see the one thing on Amazon about the story of I love Lucy and stuff? Desi. Oh, yeah, he had the largest production company ever, and he he started the model of it, you know, and he did all these shows in the 70s. Uh, Google him. Whoa. Okay. Learn something. I should know these things. No, you <laughs> know most. Too okay. young. No, but I, I do like having the control, and I like this kind of just vertical integration thing where it's just all in my wheelhouse. I think that's so important going forward. I think just the industry is going to embrace more and more just kind of like brands that can go direct to the consumer, you know? Yeah. And, and there's a lot of old school that would disagree with everything you're doing. And so, you know, totally, which is fun, I guess. The old school's dead, Dave, but okay. So it's really they're still, they're still there though. They're still there, but they're, they're, they're dying. It's a dying breed. Look at Netflix. How many subscribers they lost? They lost a million yeah. subscribers that they didn't look at their, they did not look at their customer. They did not go to the competition. They might end up, a success is the enemy. Hey, but at least they had success. All right. So my take for you is where do you see yourself, Andrew, in the next 10 years? In 10 years, where do you want to be? I want to still be heading my production company, but I want to have, I want to be able to partner with larger kind of well-known companies and studios to kind of just come together and make something a lot bigger than what I can currently do by myself with my small pool of whoever I know. So I just want to be bigger so that I can be a reputable place that other large companies who exist today would want to partner with. So I want to keep doing this, but at a much larger scale with just the best people in the world. And I just really want to just, you know, go to the top because I think a top does exist and a lot of good movies come from a so-called top and yeah i want to i just want to grow and keep i growing. love hearing that and you have to have the mindset and manifest yeah. that and it will come dave yeah. come up with your last question for andrew you're talking about the caregiving question yes yeah so i'm i was leading a normal life i owned a gas station and now i'm a four-time best-selling author um became a caregiver 25 years ago my wife had this headache lost her speech became paralyzed on one side and, you know, we almost broke up, but we worked through it and she reinvented herself. And I became the caregiver's caregiver because I was making all the mistakes being a caregiver. And by the way, everyone is eventually going to become a caregiver. And just like me, you better learn how to do it or you're just going to be scratching your head and saying, oh, you know. So I wrote this book about uh, how to do a, how to care give. And I've been on 53 TV shows. I've been speaking all over the country. My question to you, Andrew, I know you're young, but has caregiving touched your young life yet? Uh, grandparents, parents? Uh, yeah. <laughs> ah, innocent. Uh, uh, no. That would be a no. <laughs> oh, man, yeah. Have I, you I, ever I, run into anything that you've had to care for somebody? That's another good question. How you. old are your grandparents? Uh, they're uh, they're uh, 70s, 70s. Yeah, still no. doing well? Still doing well. Yeah, yeah everyone's doing well. well. Yeah, you know, I think just trying to, st everyone's trying to stay healthy and be happy. Um, caregiving, I think it's important. That's my contribution here. <laughs> uh, that's fine with that. And go to caregiverdave.com if you know of somebody that, he, Dave has a tremendous mission to help caregivers because again, most of them get burned out yes. and some die as, as Dave said, 30% of them. That's what the film is all about that they're making about me is the, uh, the celebrity caregiver because I'm going all over the world just talking about caregiving. And so we'll see what happens.
All right. And so the best place to find you now, Andrew, and the up and coming filmmaker to the next level, I see your mindset, you're going to do it as, and where can we watch the film first of all, and then 